It's Thursday, January 21st, and you are listening to Combing the Stacks, your new go-to podcast for album reviews and history. Whether you're a returning listener or a first-timer, we thank you for joining us on our journey through six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each week, we dig into the top 100 albums of the 1960s, as identified by our friends at the website besteveralbums.com. This week, we celebrate our 30th episode of Season 1. Your host of the team that has been described as the original Kings of Swing, John, Josh, and Matt. This week we cover three albums ranked in the top 15 of the charts and cover a wide range of musical styles and genres. We start things off in segment one with Josh covering the highly regarded Van Morrison album, Astral Weeks. The singer hails from Northern Ireland and has been in the news recently with his controversial thoughts on COVID lockdowns. We'll see if his most well-known album holds up in a modern context and perhaps is less controversial. Our second segment sends us deeper into the stacks for the third album by the LA-based band Love. We'll discuss Forever Changes, which marks the last album from the group's classic lineup, and mixes and matches a variety of musical styles and an eclectic body of work. We finish the show with another trip into the catalog of the Fab Four known as the Beatles. This week, it's the 1968 double album that's come to be known as the White Album. At 93 minutes and 30 songs, this perhaps the Beatles' most ambitious work. 30 shows into our voyage through the 1960s, and let's be honest, we're kind of loving it. So come for the bios, and stay for the reviews. Surely be learning 
January 21st, 2021. You are listening to the 30th episode of season one of Combing the Stacks, covering the 1960s in the rank order from besteveralbums.com. We are quickly coming to the top 10. This week, we're going to be covering albums primarily in the teens, with actually one of the albums being in the top 10 this week, one of the Beatles albums. Uh, But before we do a little bumper of what we're covering this week, let me do a quick check-in. Josh, how are you? 30 albums. I can't believe it. Who would have, or 30 episodes, who would have thought that? More than 30 albums, I can tell you that. We would have uh, come this far. We've come so far. I'm so far. My boys yes. all grown's up. <laughs> <laughs> so just just for reference for those that may be listening for the first time, tonight we'll uh, mark the 88th, 89th, and 90th full album covers that we've done in the episodes since we do three albums every week. That goes along with six additional albums that we covered in long length in a bonus episode and several other albums uh, that we've covered in a uh cold listen hot take format that we have not dropped yet but that will be coming down the road so i believe as of right now guys with uh i think i think we've done uh, seven of those segments the bonus ones at 13 and then 90 today we'll have 103 albums covered from the 60s pretty amazing huh matt i've listened to a lot of 60s records <laughs> the last a lot year. of 60s and yep. it's about time that we just flat out cover the beatles every episode from here on out because that's, that's that's what it should be and I believe, if I remember correctly, are you the Beatles the rest of the way out? I am. Yeah, there's just there's just one episode I think where you're going to be covering a bo- like because we're going to be staggering the last two episodes with two, right? You'll have. Do I get do I get to be Beatles the referee holiday. in that and that and that episode? Like, what do I what do I now, do? Now you're going to be you're going to be covering another uh, album that has since come on to the top 100 charts, if I remember correctly. Oh, so that's we'll right. I forgot that. about that. We'll okay. talk about that when we get oh, there. Oh, damn. Okay. Two episodes? Yeah. Wow. Two episodes. So. The, um, the subtitle for this decade is Beatles, etc. So it's basically everything. Beatles, Dylan, etc. I'd say, in fairness, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, Beatles, Beatles, uh, Dylan, and selected other works. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a cast of others. And a cast of others, exactly. Um, but uh, that's a great segue for us to talk about what we're covering tonight. Surprise, surprise, uh, the Beatles. This you know little album, and I don't use little literally. I use it in terms of figuratively here. Uh, the White Album. I guess it's Beatles, Beatles, right? But it's the White Album in terms of the uh, the canon. Just like you know, we did Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. One was technically Led Zeppelin, but it's Led Zeppelin One in the canon. So Matt's going to be handling that one in segment number three. Segment number two is going to be handled by me. It's going to be a debut artist, Love, and the album Forever Changes from 1968. And segment one is going to be Josh with another debut. So not often that we get two debuts in one uh, episode in the last couple episodes, but we're going to get Van Morrison Astral Weeks is going to be covered this week as well. So quite the potpourri of albums this week from the well-known to... The semi-obscure, I would say. Um, I'm excited to hear what everybody has to say, but I know that Matt has some cleaning of the stacks to do, and I don't like to keep Matt waiting when he has to clean the stacks, so I'm going to turn it over to him after Outcast. Yes, please don't make me wait. I hate, I hate waiting. No procrastination. Um, yeah, not at all. So I have, it's, it's going back a couple episodes ago, but I have a follow-up on the Beatles cartoon which we had mentioned um, when two episodes mm-hmm. ago when we covered Revolver, Josh had found that you can't really get it, you know, in most 
uh, formats. You can't stream it. You can't just go to Best Buy or Amazon and buy it. It's usually on eBay. But I found out that you can buy it for the low price of twenty three ninety nine. You can get two seasons for under twenty five bucks oh, nice. in eBay. So it's not, unfortunately, well, fortunately and not unfortunately, it's not like one of those, you know, diamond in the rough finds that's gonna you're gonna have to drop a couple hundred bucks on. So um, you can go buy some Beatles cartoons uh, for twenty four bucks. I was hoping so, you'd say you bought them and watched some to report. I, I have not. No, I haven't <laughs> bought them yet. I should. Why not? You know, I, get, I have to make sure my DVD player is working, which is mm-hmm. pretty much my Xbox, I think, at this point. But I haven't used that in, in, in a while. Matt's got to have that big money Matt spending to get that stuff right there. <laughs> so. Exactly. Um, yeah. I also failed to mention we talked about Dylan last week with uh, uh, Highway 61 Revisited and Like we a did. Rolling Stone being one of his uh, biggest hits. It did not reach number one. Um, it, it got to number two. It stayed there for a couple weeks, but it was held out of number one by the Beatles' Help. That was the one song that kept that ah. from being the number one song. Um, okay. And I had a question, another cleaning of the stacks, after listening to last week's episode, I wanted to bring up to John, because mm-hmm. we were talking about Jimi Hendrix, and um, I know, John, you're typically not a fan of longer songs. Um, no. You know, going over you know six minutes, six seven. I don't minutes. believe I'm alone in that on this podcast as well. I no. believe that is also a Josh. Okay, Hart well let me take as well. pose this to Josh too. I always thought that you were the more outspoken one about it, but uh, I'll pose this to Josh too. I don't know. I think we're equal. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Front. Well, so so Hendrix, the third track on on uh, Electric Ladyland was Voodoo Child, and that was the mm-hmm. the, the longer mm-hmm. bluesier the long for, version of for, it, yeah. for format, and that's I think it was like 15 minutes. If I'm not mistaken, both of you liked that song. So my question is, what what constitutes, it's not just a long song in and of itself that you don't like. What is it about a long, like, what do you need in a long song to be able to like it? Because um, okay. I, because there's got to be something like what is it about it that 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 would would attract you to a longer song versus one that's like i that's too long I, i'm sick of it josh you want to go first on that one sure well for me it's got to there's not there's never any hard and fast rules right i'm not going to hate every song over seven seven minutes or whatever the criteria is but mm. it has to keep my interest throughout the course of the song and if I feel myself dragging in any way or ready for the next song or feel like it's not doing enough to keep my interest, then that's generally where I'm I'm not going. It's it's if it's gonna take me on a journey, then it better have a lot of, you know, mm. stops along the way. So like different parts and things like that? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Perhaps it's okay. better for me, Matt, to give you examples of long songs I like. So perhaps mm. you might be able to know the type of songs that so I don't hate long songs in general but what I hate is long songs that are repetitive long songs that take forever without being interested to get somewhere and long songs that um, really are just showmanship of musical elements without complexity I guess would be mm-hmm. the best way to put it so let me give you an example like I like Layla by Derek and the Dominoes right which is a long song for its yep. era but if you think of Layla you've got like a, a three and a half minute song that's great and then you have the interlude at the end of it that goes in a different direction and builds right you know at right. no point is that ever uninteresting so there's a good example of a song that can stay you know 
there. You know, uh, a song like November Rain by Guns N' Roses mm-hmm. I like because of the fact that it just it changes tempos all the time. I mean, you guys both also know I'm an Iron Maiden guy. So, like, there's plenty of Iron Maiden yes. songs that go yes, long. They do. Some yep. that are ponderous, but also some that are good. And once again, it all depends on how varied the um, guitar parts are. One by Metallica is another long song that I like um, that I've always enjoyed. Um, so, you know, uh, it's not... It's not universally long songs. I just don't like boring, drawn-out long songs that seem like they're drawing mm. it out just for the sake of drawing it out. And, and I want to say the Voodoo Child I like much better on that Hendrix album is the second one, the reprise, kind of at the end. Yeah. That, to me, is a much better version of it. Um, but as long songs go, the Hendrix, the you know the um, earlier Voodoo Child, had just enough going on with it that I was... You know, I wouldn't say tolerate it, but it was interesting enough that it didn't turn me off. Does that so, help a little bit? Yeah. So like, so like, variety is more of a, or and and different parts. You know, yeah. like I think that's kind of if you're gonna go long, show me different elements to your song. I always think if you're gonna go long, tell me a story with going long. Don't just go long to go long. And I think maybe that's what it is. Like, so with, I need to see your vision. Like, to me, if you're going long, you're, you're doing it for a reason, right? So, so let me see your vision while you're going long. If so there not, would be, it's just So there would be long. no longer songs that you enjoy that is any rep- repetitive. Like, even if you really like whatever the repetitive nature is. Like, I really like Desolation Road. That's like an 11-minute song. And I yeah. really like Dude, that. I that's don't a mind good that example it goes... of a song I don't like that goes But, but what I'm saying is, from yeah. my perspective, I don't, I, that's, that's repetitive. I don't mind that. I actually like it because I really like what he's doing. And I can listen to mm-hmm. it over and over again. And sure. I really like that. As opposed to something like Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, which is a very, it's a very similar structure and similar length, but I don't like that as much because that melody or what he's doing doesn't interest me as much. So I'm so you wondering can go along if you like, if you like an individual part, you're willing to revisit it over and over again. Yeah. You like Do you that find part, that yeah. that's true for any, for no. any song for you? Okay. No, I mean, I, I yeah. am, I'm more of the thought of if you have a part that's really good, put, I mean, but once again, this is preferences, right? Oh, I'm course. not a no, huge I'm just guy of jam, yeah. jam bands. It gets yeah. repetitive to me no matter how good the part is, but I love punk rock, right? You know what I mean? Cause it's, you know, with the Ramones for example they have a guitar riff i like and they're also done in, in a minute and sure 15 are. seconds yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> at some points they play that riff that i like and they play it you know what i mean they're done so um but you know it's not for everybody um yeah. so i guess that's what i would say for okay. me but josh is that would you say the that's area. the same for you in terms of like yeah is there any repetitive long song that you that you like that you can think of or i'd, I'd have to look through my music i don't think so okay I particularly also hate, like, and, and this is where I know you and I are different, Matt. I particularly hate pop music that goes long because to me, pop music shouldn't be long. <laughs> That's what makes it pop music. Right. So I think that is why, and where we're we going to have interesting conversations about like Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen in the 70s because they are two of the people that I feel are like most guilty of writing pop songs that are too long very indulgent you know what i mean in that front you know not universally and so once again i know that at the very least springsteen's a big you know something you really like you know and and but he he goes to the well you know what i mean he'll he'll hammer (laughs) that you know he'll he'll do rosalita for example you know and kind of yeah so we'll save those talks for down the road though because okay you know he's an interesting case study for me 
no, that makes sense. I was just, yeah, I just wanted to extrapolate on that a little bit because um, because I'd also like my... to, to point out I, one of the reasons I don't mind jazz going long is because jazz is about telling a story. You know what I mean? And so if I heard a jazz part that was repetitive for 10 minutes, it would be mind numbing, you know, but a mm-hmm. lot of the jazz we're listening to. Right. It's going long, but it's you can say a lot of things, but it ain't repetitive. You know, right. Right. Yeah. So. Listeners, let us know what your favorite long songs are. Oh, mm. What what constitute what's a long you, song like past think, how many minutes? Let's say six over seven. seven. Over seven. So do you guys off yeah. the top of your head know your favorite long songs? Oh no, I don't. I That's why oh, I love to... <laughs> some of my favorite songs are long songs. I mean, jeez, we're gonna. I can't wait to cover Genesis, man. All my lo- favorite long songs yeah. are like twenty minutes, and yeah, I, I'm a big Fish fan. Oh, I could. I could yeah. talk about that all day. We'll give a couple because I gave you. I gave you like five or six. I could think of a couple others that came to my head while we were talking too. Yeah. Well, well, supper's ready comes to mind. That's my mm-hmm. that that Genesis. We're gonna cover that when we do Foxtrot yep. in like nineteen seventy three or four or something like that. Um, you're talking Guns and Roses. I mean, I always love the Strange. That's like nine minutes mm-hmm. long, I think. Um, I uh, I'm not gonna talk about because all fish songs are are, are long essentially. Um, I oh gosh, now I'm drawing a blank. I'll think, I'll I'll give you a list. I I, I can yeah. yeah. I think all my favorite bands have short songs. <laughs> Wilco's got some Wilco, Wilco's got some really great long songs. Um Yeah, Radiohead, they've got a couple of long songs. Yeah, I can Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking it's Paranoid Android would be on there for me from Radiohead, yeah. Teenage Riot by Sonic Youth. There's a couple Oh, Green Day. Songs. When Green Day did the uh, American Idiot, oh, yeah, we're going to cover that Broken album Dreams too. and stuff, yeah, Holiday. No, not Bull- but Bullet, that's a short song. I'm talking like American Idiot, um I guess like, I'm thinking of like them because they they combine them right. So like, Boulevard well, it's like Broken it's a Dreams nine minute song, holiday, but it's right. Yeah. yeah, but it's like five. No, 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 no. But there's American Idiot is. Uh-huh. Or, I'm not sorry. It's uh, Jesus of Suburbia. Maybe is the name of the song. But maybe, there's like yeah, five right. different songs in one. But it's right. one song. You know, with like yeah. five movements, if you will. So, um, but yeah, we'll have to we'll have to clean these stacks next week. That's actually a really good question. I've given a bunch, but I'm sure there's a couple other ones. And it sounds like Josh might be our a valid hater of long songs the most since he's said that he can't think of one on top of his head. So Damn. Yeah, I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to Google it, but I can't think I'm scrolling through uh, my iTunes and I don't see anything <laughs> sticking out. So, okay. Gotcha. All right. All right. Well, sorry to, sorry to go a little wayward there, but I thought that was an interesting question. Yeah, so I, uh, no problem. I enjoyed it. Go ahead and get uh who's up first. It's not me. It's me. It's definitely Josh. It's a me, it's Mario. It's <laughs> a me, Mario. I'm a gonna win. <laughs> when you fall into a trance, a sitting on a sofa playing games of chance. When you're born in arms and history books, you glance. Into the eyes of Madame George Opening montage, you had The Way That Young Lovers Do, and now you're going to hear Madame George. I lost, I blanked on the song that I had picked. <laughs> um, okay. All right, Astral Weeks, which 
came out in 1968 by Van Morrison. Do we want to talk about the elephant in the room about Van Morrison's views yes. on lockdown? I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up right now because I, okay, I got a quote gotcha. from a Guardian article about it. Um, the go. singer had stirred, he has stirred controversy recently during the pandemic. In the news. Yep. Last August, or this, yeah, this last August 2020, he reportedly urged people to fight the pseudoscience quote around COVID-19. And then a month later, he released... At two-week intervals, a trio of new tracks named Born to be Free, As I Walked Out, and No More Lockdown, all containing was, controversial lyrics. He was also joined by a veritable who's who of controversial English people who supported him, including Eric Clapton, who, you know, he has to have at least one major controversy mm-hmm. every decade that makes him look bad. And, of course, Morrissey has also joined him in oh, that. Oh, of course. <laughs> Some of the biggest iconoclasts in, in English music were in there, so... Yeah, he's petitioning. Also, I saw he's uh, Van Morrison's petitioning like the Northern Irish government or something about artists and and performing during lockdown and yes. things of that nature. So he's he's really anti-COVID. It looks like. Yeah, well, anti, anti. <laughs> sounds like he's pro COVID. Yeah, that's that stole my line. It's, I was trying to get there, and Matt just did it so much better than I did. So there you go. Okay. He wants to kill people. <laughs> so C- go- continue, Josh. Yes. Don't kill that joke, Matt. It was so good, and just don't over don't over talk it. Going back to uh, 1968 and in the 60s, uh, Van Morrison was born George Ivan Morrison in 1945 in Northern Ireland. Uh, he is a Sir now, um, courtesy of the the UK government OBE, um, and he grew up in Belfast, and his father. Uh, was a shipyard electrician and had one of the largest record collections in Northern Ireland. And this caused him to be exposed to many genres of music like blues, jazz, folk, and country. His father bought him his first guitar when he was 11. And later on, he took lessons in playing tenor sax and music reading. As a youth, he played in various skiffle bands as a teenager. Now, I know, Matt, we never really talked about this with the Beatles, but they were involved in skiffle too, right? Oh, that they, was kind yeah, of their absolutely. early uh, influences or John and Paul, right? Something yep. like that. Okay. And at 17, he toured Europe with his band, the International Monarchs, and made his first recording in 1963 on that tour. He gained more attention as a member of the band Them in April 1964. This is Do you when remember they remember who they uh, who opened for them to make them famous. Oh no, I didn't see that. God, oh, Go we back. talked about this. We did in L.A. Who is opened? It? Oh, the doors? I, oh yes, it is it the doors because I have that in my notes. Him. Yep, it was Morrison yeah. and Morrison. So yep. there you go. Right, right. Continue. Yep. Um, this is when they started performing uh, the Morrison written song Gloria, which is a, a great garage rock song, and had other hits like Baby Please Don't Go. They did a two-month tour of the U.S., building on the success of those singles in May of June of 1966, which included a residency at the Whiskey A Go-Go in the L.A., and this is where The Doors were a sporting act during their last week there. And Jim Morrison has said, or did say, that Van Morrison was influential on him as a singer and a performer. Uh, They ended up, uh, them ended up in a dispute with their manager, and they ended up having to returned to Ireland due to expiring visas, and then they broke up shortly after that. Um, at that point, Morrison decided to go solo, and them regrouped and and transplanted back to America, um, where they continued to perform as a band. Now, in 1967, Burt Burns, who was them's producer, convinced Van Morrison to come to New York City and record for his new label, Bang Records. 
Um, Morrison signed a contract with him um, that he didn't read and recorded eight songs while there. <laughs> <laughs> that will come back into play. Sixties um, musicians. Yes. Uh, an, sure. an album. An album was released without Van Morrison's knowledge, titled "Blow in Your Mind." with an exclamation point and he fa- only found out about that after the fact when a friend told him he bought the album <laughs> i'm sure that blew his so, mind too so yeah the other big thing about burt burns is that he was uh associated with the uh, organized crime in new york city I sh- we should say and that was related to his uh his record label as well um I'll come back to that in a minute. What was One, the name of the label? <laughs> like Bang Records. Stool Pigeon Records? Or so? Oh, Bang <laughs> yeah. Records. Oh, yeah, okay, Bang yeah. Records. Spot a Bang yeah. Records. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, off of one of those songs that he uh, was put out without his knowledge was Brown Eyed Girl, which was released mid-June of 1967 and reached number 10 in the U.S. charts and is probably one of the most well-known songs ever and definitely his most well-known song i don't believe you can start a cover band without <laughs> right. play that song it's in the, yeah. the, the ultimate combing the stacks cover band playlist mm-hmm. yeah uh burt burns died in 1967 and there's a big contract dispute with his widow um eileen burns for with between van morrison and her which prevented van morrison from performing on stage or recording in the new york area Um, This is also related to the organized crime element, I believe. After a period of time, Warner Brothers uh, bought out his contract from Bang or from his widow, Eileen, um, for $20,000 in cash. And according to the story, the the record exec from Warner Brothers had to basically uh, meet in an empty warehouse with the $20,000 in cash and give it to people who were not uh, in the music industry. That was my second guess. I thought the first (laughs) was going to be that it was going to fall off of a truck. Yeah. (laughs) They're going to pick it up. Uh, there was also a clause in his contract saying he had to record 36 original songs within a year for the Burns Publishing Company, and then he did them in one session with an out-of-tune guitar, and they were mostly nonsense. And those are actually on Spotify as the oh. album called The Authorized Bang Collection. So if you want to hear him half-assed to fulfill a contract, uh, feel free to check those out. Is that the original Sandinista? Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Astral Weeks was Morrison's first album with Warner Brothers. It was released November 29th, 1968. It was met with critical praise, or mixed critical praise, I should say, but an indifferent response by the public. It was recorded in Century Sound Studios in New York City uh, in three different sessions between September and October of 1968. It is known, um, it's described as a song cycle or sometimes a concept album. Um, Now, a song cycle is basically a group of songs that are designed to be performed in sequence as a whole unit. So you can probably get that feeling from from listening to this album. Um, Morrison recorded the vocals and acoustic guitar in a separate booth, and the session musicians were in another room. The strings and horns were added after the fact, and Morrison said that he did not want the strings added and that they ruined the song or the album's. Oh, is that we would we, we call that uh, Nico, uh, the the curse oh, of Nico? Yeah, yeah, she didn't like that either, did she? No. Yeah, I guess so. So the pro- producer on this album was Louis Marenstein, and for the session players, he went on the jazz musician route. And some notables on on here: we have 
Jay uh, Berliner, who was on the classic and acoustic guitars, and he played with Charlie Mingus. And then kind of the leader, the facto leader of the session musicians was Richard Davis on the double bass. And he worked with Eric Dolphy. Um, he approved of the other musicians as well that Marenstein recruited. So he was he was very involved in in the process. Um, other people of note, uh, John Payne was on the flute. Uh, Jay uh, Warren Smith Jr. is on percussion and vibraphone. And Connie Kay was on drums. He's also a notable um, drummer in jazz groups. Morrison basically gave no direction or had any pre-planning meetings um, during these recording sessions. And he stayed in the booth and told them they could play whatever they wanted or whatever they felt. Um, that was kind of mixed, uh, had mixed um, approval by the by the session musicians. On the one hand, they said that he was kind of standoffish and didn't really, um, or was shy, I think was one quote, and he didn't really, um, you know, interact with them too much. But on the other hand, they liked the freedom that he gave them and um, the drummer, Connie Kay, said that they basically just sat there and jammed. And Jay Berliner said that he appreciated the freedom, um, which was unusual at that time. Um, as I said, there were three different recording sessions. Um, they recorded four tracks on the, the first session. They uh, Nothing really produced on the second session. And then on the four, third session, they produced the other four tracks. Um, this album has a stream of consciousness lyrics as you could probably hear um it's said to be considered folk rock or folk jazz and um the cover photo of van morrison is taken by joel brodsky who is best known for his iconic jim morrison young lions photo shoot which has the famous photo of of a shirtless jim morrison with his arms outstretched and basically that most famous mm -hmm. photo of jim morrison um as I said before, the album sold poorly on release in the U.S. and the U.K. I can't imagine why after listening to it for um, that sarcasm. I can't imagine why. Um, <laughs> Rolling Stone gave it a positive review saying it captured the spirit of uh, Dylan's John Wesley Harding and later named it the album of the year. And its critical standing has also Wait, improved it over it time. It captured the spirit of John Wesley Harding? That's what Rolling Stone said. Real Marcus. Sound nothing alike. I know. Continue. Go ahead. I guess the spirit is the same. And, yep. <laughs> and that's about it. Um, this album, I found a good uh, quote from, uh, from an author about why this album is considered canonical, which maybe I can bring up after we discuss it. And it does not can sound... Can you tell me what canonical means first so I know whether I agree with that or not? Like if it's part of the canon of rock oh, music can basically canonical. canonical yes Cano did i mispronounce okay. it Sorry. i just thought it was something with knots like oh <laughs> like no i didn't hear the ca the canon uh, so yep. continue i'm sorry and um yeah so we'll leave it there um i have strong thoughts on this album which i'm excited to share with you all but what did you do you guys know th okay so let me back up what it was your experience with this album and matt what did you think about astral weeks van morrison <laughs> more like van morrison <laughs> right great <laughs> uh i did not know this album at all I, I i mean i had heard about it um and i knew that it was it made many top 10 top 100 whatever best of lists um if i'm not mistaken when rolling stone first did their 
you know, top 100 albums, uh, you know, within, back in 03 or whenever it was they did. This was in the top 10. Like, this was might have been ahead of the White Album, just, you know. And um, so, but I never Shaking listened to it. Head. No. So I so this was new. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I was I was very excited to listen to this. Um, I was glad that Brown Eyed Girl wasn't on it, you know, because mm, I was mm-hmm. like, that's you know, it's like because I'm kind of sick of that song. Yes. Um, God, this album was not good. It's just so overrated. I don't get why this is up in everybody's list. This was a, this was not an easy listen. Um, and actually, kind of piggybacking off of our discussion of long songs. I mean, this mm-hmm. kind of, to me, there's several long songs on here that are three over seven, one is almost 10. And that's the, when you talk about repetitive, that's what a lot of these songs are. Um, there's not a ton of melody. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's kind of stream of conscious is a great way of describing what it is. Cause it's just, yep. let's pick kind of like a, some sort of structure. I mean, there, there is structure. We're not talking captain Beefheart stuff here, right? There, there is, there is some structure, there's some melody, but it doesn't really go anywhere. It drags on beside you is a very annoying song to listen to. I was so sick of his voice at the end of that song. It seemed like it, it just seemed somewhat manic and and just disjointed, and it was almost like him, you know, just just screaming almost, even mm-hmm. though he's not screaming. You know, I, I I think he's got a good voice. I think that there's I think that there's elements within the songs here that could do something. Um, I didn't hate the whole thing. Like I I think one of my favorite songs on here was the the way the young lovers do. Um, I think the mm-hmm. chorus for that was a really cool, catchy, um, uh, you know, type of sound. I liked his voice with it. I, I I thought that that was good. I think that Madam George, like the the the, the overall structure of that is 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 pretty decent. Um, Astral Weeks, I think, had some positive aspects of it, but it just never went to the next level. It just stayed there, and I guess kept wanting to f- more with it. Um, yep. And and the way it ends, Slim Slow Slider, the way the way that the album it just stops. It's yeah. like all of a sudden, like they mm-hmm. do this. It's a shorter song, and then they cut them with some bangos or bongos, and like, and all of a sudden, it's like boom, done. And and I would, and I was just like, wait, I was. It was a very abrupt ending to the album. So I, it was. It's not a pleasant listen. Um, again, I, I, it's it's not as bad as Nico or, or or Captain Beefheart, like I said before. But I don't get this. I don't know why people love this album so much. I was scratching my head the whole time. Uh, highly overrated album. I, no way I'm going back to this. Wow. All right, strong out of the gate. John, what do you think of Astral Weeks? So I, there's Van Morrison that I like. I know you guys, for whatever reason, hate Brown Eyed Girl, which is such a weird thing to me since that's a wonderful pop it's, song. It's, it's, more just, later... it's more of just an overplayed thing. That's to okay. me, it's just like I hear yeah, it at I every like wedding. And I'm like, all right, I get it. Yeah, like, it's, I got gotcha. you. So. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. And, and there's, defi- there's Van Morrison later. I mean, we're going to cover Moondance, and that's going to okay, be interesting yeah, to different. compare right here. Um, I've always hated this album. I'm really familiar with this album. I, I've always hated it. I, I've always, when I've, I've consistently put this in my top 10 most overrated albums since mm-hmm. I was a teenager, I think. Um, I've often described, I mean, so the, the way Young Lovers Do is a great song. It's right in the middle of the album and it's surrounded by songs I just, I, I would say like you have that song in the middle with a tight structure, almost like the structure of like how Brown Eyed Girl is. It doesn't sound like, but it's similar. It's a pop song you could listen to in isolation. Mm-hmm. I have always described this album as basically like, here's what you hear for 45 minutes like nah, nah, ha, nah, you know just constant <laughs> you know it's there's no variation it's just yeah. like nah, ha, like <laughs> the constant the same coda the same you, you, it's it's hard to know what he's talking about when you do read it it's a lot of nonsense it's a lot i mean 
he, he consistently <laughs> writes explicitly about sex, which is fine, but just bizarrely explicitly at times. But you'd never get it from how he's singing because there's no real <laughs> difference in terms of how it sounds when he's singing about having sex compared to how he's singing about thinking about <laughs> someone he's missing compared to how he's thinking about love and loss. It's just always like, na na ha, na na ha, you know, like <laughs> over and over again. The instrumentation is way too, like, sparse. It doesn't do anything to kind of compliment him for having that many session players in uh, in the album. It's just weird, especially because, you know, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Van Morrison, but I mean, obviously, you know, Brown Eyed Girl, but like Moondance and stuff. There's he does stuff that's interesting musically later. I love Gloria. Him, I mean, that was of, an earlier yeah, song, but Gloria, I love that right. song. None yeah. of that's here. It's like yeah. it's basically like everything that you would like about Van Morrison with the with in fairness the distinct um, exception of The Way Young Lovers Do, which is a song I actually do like. Um, the rest of the album, yeah, it just bleeds together. It's, uh, I mean, a common 60s, it's overly long. Um, you just don't need this many six-minute songs, nine-minute songs, seven-minute songs. Uh, by the time you get to, like, Madam George through Slim Slow Slider, it's just, mm. it's like white noise, kind of. Um, it, it just, it, it all blends together. Um, I definitely list, gave it, a fair amount of listens this time to see if my opinion had changed from the, you know, every five years that I check in on some of the classic albums that I don't love. And no, nah, it just, just doesn't do yeah. it for me. I'm not anti Van Morrison, but I've, I've never liked this one. And I, I don't know if I'll ever like this one. Yeah. I'm on the same page as you guys. Uh, I borderline hate this album. I struggled to listen to it. I was put off by it. As soon as I started listening to it, I, w I thought of that, that um ali g segment where he sees the chicken and he was like what the fuck is that, <laughs> What's that? <laughs> and i um this is like a bad jazz album in some respects right yes. um i can't like matt said i the, the his voice is the is the standout part for me the one positive that i get from it but this is like one long bad song and they i really hate how unfocused and kind of freewheeling it feels i don't like the stream of consciousness lyrics i don't like the fact that the songs don't really seem to have a structure in a way that is is okay on the jazz albums that we listen to but they have structures in a way that this album doesn't and it really uh, always kept me um off kilter and I don't like that there's no real, like, choruses to most of these songs. Um, it just keeps going with him singing um, in John's impression. And uh, despite the fact that the musicianship is good on the session musicians, I just, none of it really came together for me. Uh, John put it best, this has got to be, like, one of the most overrated albums that we've we talked about. I can't believe it's so high. Um, even researching it, I people... Uh, you know, critics like Lester Bangs really liked it and and other people say how much they're moved by it and how much it like really like shook them to their core and it made them ache and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't get God. it. It's just it's just rambling uh, nonsense. Especially especially because we've covered lots of jazz and I can't think of any jazz album we covered that was I mean. I guess you could say the Dolphy album, but the Dolphy, once again, like the more jazz we did, the more interesting the Dolphy album became to me. I, it certainly wasn't boring, you know what I mean? Or samey mm -hmm. at the very least. And then, you know, we've done Blue-Eyed Soul, 
quite a bit, but mm-hmm. this is, I don't even think of this as Blue-Eyed Soul, really, because it's compared to, like, uh, you know, we've done, what, Dusty Springfield, in a bonus episode, we just recently did Laura Nero, you know, if we if we want to go with guys, we've done, you know, uh, Buckley, um, and people mm-hmm. like that, Scott Walker, um, yes. all of those albums, while, you know, across the board in terms of stuff, I wouldn't say, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, they, they, they definitively fell into that that realm much more than this did as as you said it's it's like a it's like a jazz album but not really an interesting jazz album well mm-hmm. and we've also done folk and singer songwriter right. stuff that's kind of and it's and it's yeah i and i think that that's one of the things that i'm just most taken up what i dislike the most about this is the fact that i known that this has been so highly regarded and it's just never something I ever went to. So I was like thinking, this is going to be great. I'm finally going to get into this. And then I was just like, did a 180 on it, you know? I, it, 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 and it didn't take me long. The, the second song was terrible. Like I, I, and I don't get how this is moving to people. I, I am totally missing out on this. Um, and I, I don't know if other, I, obviously some people found this interesting or influ, influential. I don't, I don't know, but it, it, it's, it's just shocking to me how, how positive or how highly regarded this album is. Um, Yeah. I can't see this album standing the test of time. I think it must've been something with where it was in the moment and, and the people who were influenced by it after the fact. There are still a fair amount of people that will, will um, advocate for this album. And I, I just, I've always chalked this up to it. Just something just doesn't click for it for me. That seems to click, especially with musicians Um, that, you know, maybe that's why, I'm not a, a musician. I love music, but maybe in terms of the creation standpoint, um, and you know, but it it hasn't really lost in its esteem. If anything, I'd say no. it's held pretty steady. So. Yeah, the most recent Rolling Stone, uh, you know, top five hundred. I think this is like sixty or something. Well, so it's you'll definitely still hear modern acts say that yeah. they love this album. Yeah. Yeah, because because a lot of people that were voted in that one are younger younger yeah. artists, um, and so it, I mean, it dropped like fifty spots, but it's still up there. Um, you know, way higher than a lot of the albums that we've well, covered it's also already. Because thirty years has passed since it's there, so when you think of it in that context, it hasn't really dropped all that much. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get it. Um, it's and it's also from what I read, completely different than the rest of his work. So it's kind of like oh, its I mean, own yeah, well, its own thing too. Um, we'll do Moon Dance, which is very different than this album. Yeah. I was I was not you know knowing nothing about this album. I was expecting that there would be either a songs I had heard of or like some sort of single or something. And there's none of that on here, yeah. and it's really disappointing. It's not accessible. Um, it's it's just it's not. I wouldn't say this is an accessible album. Yeah, all. which I is don't... funny because he had like Gloria and Brown Eyed Girl, which you know you you can't be yeah. more accessible than those two songs. But and slightly before this, you know, so. It's just weird, isn't it? Because, you know, you, you have the ability to write those songs. And I, although, I, once again, I, the one thing I'll say is I do think The Way Young Lovers Do is a really good song. I agree. I, I did like that song. And that was that was when, I think maybe the second time I listened through it, when that song came on, I was like, okay, maybe, maybe, because I, I, I did like that. And I was like, well, maybe if I give this some more ch- more of a chance, I can I can pick up on some other stuff in the other songs. And I, not really. I mean, so, there's there's parts. It's like, like I said, I think that there there is structure here. There are parts that I'm like, okay. I can maybe get along with this, but then like, since it does nothing more than just, it just hangs onto it and drags it out for seven or eight minutes. It's that it, 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 it falls flat, you know, but so I agree, con- John, that that's a good con- song. 
So to continue with our earlier conversation, this would fall in that category of yeah. <laughs> songs yeah. that yes. did not do enough that were long. <laughs> and I yes. and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Even you know, as as a long song fan, I I hear everything that you're you 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 guys complain about long songs. I think that's absolutely what you hear here. I also don't like songs that you think are going to end and then they just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> with with repeating the same general vocals yeah. over and over again and. You know, like, so, you're still okay. screaming about that. His voice is good, though. I will give him his yeah. voice is good. Uh, yes. You know, um, it's to say the least. And I just think it's very with this, what he's doing here. It's very underutilized. Um, he, he could glory is a much better representation of what he's of what he's capable well, of. His so. voice is good. But even this, I don't think you get that on this album because he's just doing the same thing over and over again. And like, how good can your voice be if I don't want to hear it anymore after a while? And that's where you get, I've <laughs> always felt point. that way on this album because I it's see like, the potential, John, you know, <laughs> there's the potential there, you, you know? know, even people that I don't like who I have good voices. It's rare that like, I can't tease out, Oh, they have a good voice. It's just not my thing, you know? And, and this, it gets to that point where, I'll give you an example. Like I felt different ways about the the Simon and Garfunkel albums, right? From liking them to being, eh, you know, in the middle. But at no point did I say, "Boy, that Art Garfunkel and Paul Simon's voice," I just it's it's just grating on me. You know what right. I mean? It's like right. I always mm-hmm. was able to appreciate it as good, and it was varied enough that even when I didn't love the constructions, it wasn't because I didn't love their voice. And to me, that's you know that's what a great singer has to be. You know that yeah. <laughs> their voice stays even if you don't love their work. Yeah. So yeah, big big thumbs down from all three of us on mm-hmm. this one. I yeah, wasn't sure how you guys were gonna feel about it. I, I felt that it. yeah, I was also uh, wondering how you guys were felt. I was tempted to text you guys, but I I held off. So. I, I I I was wondering, but I also thought I'll I'll be shocked if either of them like this album. Like yeah. I just I I just didn't see it happening. So that's the good thing about not doing prep for this. You get to hear our unfiltered thoughts ahead. For those that ask, we do not share how we think the album went ahead of this. It's always mm-hmm. a cold uh, take real time. So that's a question I get a lot. So there you go. Behind the curtain, you, you know, we, you're hearing it for the first time. So, yep. yep. Okay. Let's close the book on Van Morrison and move on. Gotcha. You guys ready for some love? I love love. Some love. <laughs> so love forever changes. The montage had the Daily Planet, not Superman, right? That's Superman's right. paper, if I remember yep. correctly. Yeah, you're right. The Daily Planet is the montage, and the opener is Alone Again or. Okay, so you just heard Alone Again Or, which is the track, uh, the opening track of Love Forever Changes from 1967. So this is the rare album in the 60s, which I had never listened to coming into it. So I think it's maybe, I think I was counting, I think it's maybe the seventh or eighth album that I, it was a true cold listen for me in terms of albums that we've done. Um, Oh, damn, look at John being all well-learned and everything like that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's just you stumble into stuff, you know, over time. But how how much had you guys known about this band? Zero. Although Zero? I recognize okay. the opening track. Gotcha. Uh, 
Well, I, I've known, I knew the band. I've heard about this album, but I never heard any of the songs okay. before. So it was basically a cold listen for all of us. Yeah. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about Love. So Love was formed in Los Angeles in 1965 and uh, was one of the first racially diverse bands of its era. In fact, some ways... Um, it's similar to like Sly and the Family Stone, who we said that about before, but Sly and the Family Stone was sort of fronted by um, African-Americans and the rest of the, the set piece, uh, the set players uh, around were white and different races and female. Um, this is kind of the, the opposite of that, right? It's kind of um, the set uh, players are uh, people of color, um, but the main uh, singer, multi-instrumentalist, Arthur Lee. Um, you know, I'm not 100% sure. That's actually going to be a good coming, uh, cleaning the stacks next week. Arthur Lee's ethnic background, not that it really matters, but um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he is an amalgam of different things. And he was working with uh, two Caucasian uh, guitar players, uh, Brian McLean um, and Johnny Eccles at the beginning. Uh, the original drummer was Don Conca, but Don Conca does not last very long, and he is replaced by Albin Snoopy Fisterer. So that's one of the great names. Of, <laughs> I seem to get a lot of the great names, don't I, in terms of you the do. bands that I cover yeah. right here? So yes, Albin Snoopy Fisterer is the drummer. Johnny Eccles is the guitarist. Brian McLean uh, is the other guitarist, and Arthur Lee, singer, multi-instrumentalist, is the lead singer. Um, this is kind of his uh, brainchild. Um, he had been recording since 1963 after he attended a Birds concert and decided that he wanted to start a band, and he basically started adding people. He added, you know, we talked, McLean, the guitarist, was a roadie for the Birds, and Conca and Eccles were guitar players locally. Um, he, you know, he replaces Conca pretty quickly with Fister, who was a set, uh, session drummer, and he um, has an original bassist, Johnny Fleckenstein, another great name, perhaps Fleckenstein. Mm. Uh, I did not see a pronunciation anywhere specifically. Uh, he leaves pretty quickly and gets replaced by Ken Forsey, who is a surf guitarist. <laughs> so mm. you've got, a, you know, you add him from a surf guitarist. Um, it is escaping me right now, but Ken Forsey was originally a member of one of the the well-known surf bands, but he was not in the band when they released the song that you would know from the surf band. So he was in the uh, incarnation that did not hit it big. So just but missed he, out. he did okay here, yes. Would it um, be the Surfaris? Because they're... <laughs> the Surfaris? It, it could be. be. Yeah, it could be. Um, I, I want to say that he was in the band that did Wipeout, if I remember correctly. But, you know, once again. Yeah, that I'll, would be uh, the Surfaris. The Surfaris, there you go. But he was not there when they did wipe out. So, yeah, so there you go. Uh, if I'm wrong about that, I promise I will clean that stack next week, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on that one. Um, so Love was known for drawing on a wide range of music sources, which you definitely hear in this album. There's folk, hard rock, flamenco, jazz, blues, mariachi, orchestral pop. They veered into all of it. Um, this album was their third album from 1967. They had two before it. A little bit of how they got to this album. The band starts by playing LA clubs in April of 1965, which, you know, I feel like um, that period in mid 1965 in LA was similar to how like you hear about the early 80s in LA as well when all the like metal bands you know the the hair bands were playing you know what I mean Mm -hmm. in LA Mm -hmm. and you walk down the street and you see a band who eventually signed a record contract. I feel LA was a little bit like that because when we've been, t- that's where the Doors were playing. You know, Them was playing that we just talked about. You've got 
you know, love playing there. There's other bands that we've talked about too. Or Frank Zappa was playing. Frank Zappa was there. If I remember correctly, I think the 13th floor elevators were there for a little bit before they went back to Austin. Um, And so there's just a lot of different bands playing there. So it must've been an interesting time. Um, So as they're playing these clubs in 1965, they get a a good rep as a good live act. And they actually were well-regarded by uh, the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds in particular. Um, They... Um, one of the interesting things about this band is they actually lived communally in a home that they called the castle, um, which Josh, you would love this because the castle was actually like a mansion that was considered to be haunted. That was, um, oh, it goes back to old Hollywood in LA. Mm. And so they were, they were living there communally and doing from all, uh, things, a, a great amount of drugs during this time as well. Um, and drugs will be a, a theme throughout the band in terms of how they broke up, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But man, so I, living... I thought you were going to talk about Josh's, you know, affinity for sex mansions. Is what I thought you were. That <laughs> I type did of not man. get I the feeling like that this mansions. was a. I did not get a feeling that this was a sex mansion. This seemed more like a, um, like a, Drug a darker mansion. '60s, yeah, darker '60s <laughs> mansion, you know, in some Movie ways. Movie mansion. But... Yeah. Um, so they're living there. Um, they sign with Elektra Records and they release their first album, which is the safe. Uh, self-titled love it's released in march of 1966 and sells moderately well uh, by all accounts Um, they actually add two more members to the band between album one and two Um, michael stewart comes in as another drummer uh, as a drummer and actually this uh, moves fister snoopy fister to the harpsichord from the drums so stewart takes over the drums and fister goes to the harpsichord and then j tjay cantrelli comes in on the woodwinds so they're now a seven piece keeping on the theme of italian themed albums the uh, second album is da capo from november of 1966 (laughs) so same year as the first album Uh, it is a way more experimental album i gave it a quick listen a little bit and for sure you notice it uh right away and is received pretty well by critics doesn't sell quite as well as the first album Um, there's a pretty significant amount of movement between album two and three, Forever Changed and Recovering. Um, Cantrelli, the Woodwinds guy, and Fister, who went from drums to harpsichord, leave the band, and they are once again a five-piece band uh, going into love with the traditional pieces, the bass, the regular guitar, uh, the lead guitar, the drums, uh, multi-instrumentals, singer, um, along the way. So two guitarists um, Mm. along with a bassist. Uh, the album, this album is looked at as being more avant-garde than some of their earlier work. Um, we said experimental earlier, but the experimental was not necessarily avant-garde as much as just, um, you know, framework um, within the, tra- a traditional framework, but just, you know, playing differently. This is a little bit of a, a, a departure. Um, and it also has a much softer sound than their early albums. Um, mm. Some things to know about this album it was actually recorded in 64 hours and utilizes quite a bit of session musicians, including some of the members of the Wall of Sound, which we've talked about before. Um, Lee and McLean are fighting pretty much the entire album because McLean wants more of his songs on Love Albums, and Lee is sort of saying, you know, that, that kind of it's my band a little bit, and you know, I'm the the um, I'm the creative juices, and you know, there was a little bit of a. a a difference of opinion there about how much of a band it was for Lee compared to the rest of the band. Um, this also did not uh, get received well in the U.S. sales-wise. Uh, it only ever got to number 154 on the album's charts. Um, it is it is better regarded in the U.K. where it hits number 24, but I don't think you can really um, say that uh, this was um, 
you know, a, a hit in any way. Um, interestingly enough, and I feel like I've had quite a few bands that have had this story. You know, we did the zombies and it's kind of a similar story to this. After mm -hmm. the album, McLean leaves and Lee just dismisses the rest of the band. He just fires them. So basically this is the end of the, the, the love lineup that created this album. Um, basically Lee continues to record with the rest of the bands and, and the rest of the bands is dismissed and kind of does their own thing. Unfortunately, what their own thing is, is pretty fast. I mean, the band has a, quite a checkered history. Eccles and Forsey struggle mightily with drug addictions. Uh, Lee actually ends up going to prison uh, later oh. um, in the early 80s. Um, and McLean has his own issues before reemerging as a Christian artist. Um, McLean and Forsey actually both die relatively young in their early 50s. Um, and Lee was still touring with a version of... Um, love in the early 2000s along the way so um mm. unfortunately it's i feel like we we have some semblance of that story quite a bit with some of the bands that we cover um you know the band kind of has that story a little bit for the most mm. part the zombies and so it's a similar story to that um the band does periodically um reunite in future decades but never with anything closely resembling the full lineup um two more things before we go into it um love did not tour Arthur Lee hated it, and so they never went on tour, um, which is kind of funny because they were known, you know, they broke for being a live band. But one of the reasons that it was thought that they never really um, gained success was because they just didn't tour. Um, they were also on the same label as The Doors, and so a lot of times they were really overshadowed in terms of the promotion mm -hmm. by The Doors, who were kind of considered to be more of an it band than love is so they kind of fell um by the radar um i think it goes without saying in terms of that communal house this was recorded heavily under the influence of lsd and heroin uh, by all members of the group um and one thing i don't know if you guys noticed this i certainly did as i listened to the lyrics even before i'd done my research for it um, i like to do my first listen before i do the research to not you know be led to different stuff but this album was kind of like that david bowie album we did and to some degree the united states of america album we did where it was very much lyrically about the dark side of flower power and the 60s and lee said that like even though he was in it he he intuitively knew that like all of the mantras of love and free love and peace and stuff like concealed a very dark underbelly especially mm. in la and most of the songs on this album are about that and it, it is very clear in writing this especially when he wrote it that he was seeing something that really would blow up in 68 and 69 you know like a lot of what he was writing about i think is a little bit of that what you think of when you think of like the Manson family a little bit, you know, like people, you know, mm -hmm. big on drugs, you know, kind of, you know, without a moral compass, a little bit of darkness under, you know, mantras and stuff like that. So that's a big theme of this album. Very prophetic. Um, he said he both saw it and felt detached from it at times, but also lived it at times. And hence he felt this was a dark album. So there you go. Um, a little bit longer bio than I normally do, but I found it to be kind of an interesting mm -hmm. band. And I think there's probably a lot of people listening that may not know a lot about them. Um, we started last time with Matt. I'm going to uh, start it with Josh this time. What were your thoughts on this album? Um, I did not like this album. I also don't understand why it's so high on the charts. Um, as Emily said, more like Anne Board again, when in reference to <laughs> Anne Board. Hey, again, she stole my song. joke. <laughs> and um, I have to agree with her on that. Um, I did pick up on the like Spanish flamenco type of sounds throughout the album. 
Um, I got that. It seemed like a combination of that with um, with folky and and some like flower child psychedelia. That was all kind of mishmashed together. You even got some English folk um, sounds in there at times too. It also maybe sounded like Scott Walker or Nick Drake with touches of Santana thrown in. There's it's really kind of a mishmash, and none of it um, none of it worked for me, and I didn't particularly like um, any of the songs. I did like when they would lean into those harder guitar parts there are some cool um, guitar solos like uh, on the house is not a motel about two-thirds of the way through there's a cool guitar part there um, there's also some really weird lyrics um, on this album and uh, something on live and let live was the snot is caked against my pants I don't know if that's a euphemism or not but um, also, that song, The Red Telephone, reminded me of a Pink Floyd song in some respects, just in terms of its structure and kind of the nonsense of it all. And um, yeah, I, I didn't really, this album was a little confusing to me. I didn't see what the big deal was. I don't, I, nothing really stood out. I don't see myself listening to that again. I'm glad I got some bio from John on that because um, I didn't know anything about this band. And yeah i guess that's yeah i'm just negative on this album really <laughs> okay gotcha matt what were your thoughts so i i liked it um i didn't love it but i i did like it a lot i i i think that you know part of the conversations that we have with with albums that are in in this part of the ranking so ranked ranked highly i don't i don't know if it deserves this this high of a ranking but i i did find myself liking this quite a bit um I was very much inter- way more interested in this than, than Van Morrison. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is, I, I agree with, with some of what Josh is saying, because I do think that it, it's a, it's slightly disjointed. There's a lot of different things going on and you've already dropped mm-hmm. a bunch of bands that you thought it sounded like. I mean, I was also picking up on Tim Buckley, you know, like, yes. uh, and, and, yeah. and Morgan is like a Tim Buckley type song, um, done better, I think, than, you know, Tim Buckley did his stuff. Um, and I felt like something like the Daily Planet kind of reminded me of the who there was aspects of that that i thought was um yeah kind of who like with with the bass Mm -hmm. and the drums up front and with Mm -hmm. certain parts of it almost like theatrical kind of like tommy-esque types of parts where the the vocals would kind of go off in a little bit of a different direction um so i saw a lot i saw either you can definitely hear them incorporating a variety of different things i really like the 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 flamenco the spanish guitar the the mariachi horns and the Mm -hmm. the opening track was were really great um and i think that my favorite aspect of the record was like probably from songs like the red telephone through bummer in the summer which i i think was just a really strong um you know sequence of songs tracks six through ten um taking it in a slightly proggy different you know different proggy way i like the introduction of the guitar solos kind of coming out of nowhere i thought that they really added to um the the, the overall sound um and it's got some of the orchestration it's got like that 70s feel a little bit with some of the some of the the, the strings that are going on here um I, I thought that on my first listener too, I thought that by the end of the week I would be loving this and being like, oh my God, I'm all in. I didn't, mm-hmm. I don't think I quite got there. Um, but I, but I definitely l- like this and I can see, I, th- I think it's interesting all the stuff that you were talking to John about, you know, the, the, the anti, uh, you know, counterculture, anti hippie type sentiment. I mean, this is all done basically right in the middle of the summer of love. So yeah. you kind of have that interesting juxtaposition that these guys are like, yeah, not so much. Like there's some downside sides to this um so uh even though that wasn't something that i was picking up 
you know, totally on or much at all, really. Uh, I think that that even adds more of an interesting element to this. So, um, so I, yeah, I really like this. This was, this was a fun listen. Um, I, I don't mind that it's kind of a little all over the place. I, th- I think that that act added to its strength. And I think that there's some really good, um, uh, uh, you know, comp, I don't want to say, um, like parts of the comp different compositions here, I think are really, really well written. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I I think it's a cool. It's definitely a '60s out '60s record yeah. for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, it took a couple listens for me to really get into it, but um, I, I I do I do like this album a lot. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Matt. Because at one point you said I kind of feel like it's a '70s album. I'm like, oh, this is like a quintessentially '60s album. I feel like it's very, it's as much a '60s album as I feel like any album we've listened to with that mm-hmm. being said i really like this album a lot and i really liked it more every single time i listened to it um it's i listened to it three times and every time i listened to it i liked it more mm-hmm. um and i think one of the main reasons i liked it so much was because each time i listened i i really appreciated the musicianship um, as Matt mentioned, there's some really good bass lines in here. There's some really good lead guitar that I didn't notice as much the first time around as I did say the second and especially the third time around. Um, the layering and the production of the album, it, it doesn't jump out to you right at the beginning, but then it gets more busy and complicated as you listen to the album for those pieces. Um, I thought the songwriting was really good. There were some good hooks on this album. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, I liked the ambition of this album. I, I, it doesn't sound like the United States of America album, but it's similar to me in the sense that it's very much a 60s album, but they take a lot of chances, and I like the chances they took. Um, and so while everything didn't hit, it's a very ambitious album, um, and I like the... Um, the cornucopia of sounds. Um, And I think also in juxtaposition to that Van Morrison album where, you know, everything kind of blended together. Like you can't say that about this album. Um, And, you know, I think it's also a testament to this album that, you know, we, what have we talked about? Like 12 different artists, you know, between the two of you guys that you thought it was referential to. And that's to me tells you that, you know, it tells you how varied the album is. Um, I, I know Matt said he didn't love it. I, I, it's not in my top fifteen albums, but you know, by the end of it, it it started to get close to that top twenty for me. I really yeah. came to appreciate it um, quite a bit, and um, I do. I think I would recommend this album to people who are ambitious music listeners because I think it's the type of album that people would like to stumble into and find, um, and especially people who are willing to give multiple listens to it. Um, so if you're one of those types of people that's looking for something new that you might not be aware of and you have a little bit of musical patience, this might be the type of album that might be good to introduce into your life um, because it's it's pretty good. Um, and yeah, I, I, that, that's really my takeaway. Like each song is unique in its own way. Some hit better than others, but um, you know, there are folk elements to this. There are... Matt mentioned prog rock, and I think kind of what he's talking about is sort of, um, you know, the the inverted structure at different points and the, you know, multiple instruments coming in at different times um, because it's not like long winded. It doesn't overstay no. its welcome either. Um, it's 11 songs. I think it's about 44 minutes. So it's about an average length of four songs. 
Um, and, and yeah, I agree with you, Matt. Six to ten in particular is a really strong run of yeah. songs. Now, with that being said, I also really like Alone Again or track one and The Daily Planet track four. And I, I really grew to like Old Man as well, the fifth song, um, okay. every time I listened to it. So yeah, I, I would say definite recommend for me. Um, and after the first listen, it was going to be a recommend, but I don't know if it would be as definitively a recommend as it was the third listen. And I think you guys know I usually listen to these albums two times, and that's enough. This was one that demanded a third yeah. listen for me. So yeah. um, it, was, it, was, it was not an immediate set of bullet points for me. Um, it was harder to get there um, and figure out what it was, yeah. Yeah, this is a good example of a record that that's hard to pin pin down on one mm -hmm. listen, you know, um, because there's just because it and and part of the reason that I say prog rock is because because of that element that you think it, you know what's that going on. Yeah. Well, well, not even that, but they just take it in a different direction. They do they take you in unexpected places mm -hmm. and they they add different layers to it. And that the first and upon the first listen, you're like, oh, where'd that come from? I wasn't expecting, you know. And then as you listen to it more. You, you have a better idea of what they're doing and then you expect it to come and then you can you can see all the pieces kind of fit together would, um and would I, you and say I, matt because i've struggled mm -hmm. to would you say it's kind of like what pink floyd tries to do but more in a pop sensibility than early pink floyd because it i felt like it, it was sort of doing the same things that pink floyd was doing in the 60s but it ended up kind of being more like 70s pink floyd not totally but do you, know, you know what I'm saying? A I, bit? It, it's like, there's there's it's it's definitely I would say it's definitely an easier listen than yes. than the six than the than the other two Pink Floyd albums that we covered uh -huh. by far. Yes, particularly ob that. particularly obscure uh, uh, Saucer Full of Secrets. Um, I do yeah. think that there's parts of uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn that that do have more melodic, catchy, poppier songs but or structures. But um, but the production and kind of what they're doing it's a, it's a, that's a little bit more avant garde than this. Um, I, I didn't really pick up a whole lot of Pink Floyd, maybe elements here and there, but that wasn't really what I what I got. So um, I might have to think about that a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, it's kind of um, its own thing. We keep referencing yeah. other groups, but really, I think what that really says is that it's not it's not really any of them. It's kind of its own thing, and maybe we should be comparing other people to love a little bit. Yeah, I also would be fascinated to hear a little bit more of what the harpsichord and the woodwinds would sound like on the album where they were present. You know, because. Mm. They weren't totally present here, but there were, you know, some of the session players, you know, went in that direction. So I got, you know, hints of it a little bit. So, well, it's interesting you said this band didn't like to tour. I mean, that you can only go so far as a band, I would imagine, if you're not touring and getting mm -hmm. getting your name out. And and that's maybe why I have never heard of this band before. It's probably it seems like it's is it another band that is influential with artists and that's why the legacy is is there and something like that i, I know that critics really like this album mm. uh, and critics of all different tastes like this album it's an album that definitely has grown in esteem over the years um, it was well regarded in its time and in the 70s but in um revisionist lists you know what i mean it's one of those albums that's continually gone up. it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the zombies odyssey and oracle right you know it was mm -hmm. well regarded but it keeps climbing as people listen to it and i, I can see why too because even though it is very much a product of the 60s you can listen to this now and <laughs> there's a little bit of the hints of some of the stuff that still resonate to this modern day much mm -hmm. more than 
you know, garden variety psychedelia, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, so, and as much as I loved like the Jefferson airplane album and, you know, Santana and stuff like that, they're kind of of their time. I, I didn't feel that way about this. I felt like this could travel out of its time a little bit. And, I, I, and that's another band, Jefferson airplane. I hear that in here too, with yep. some of the more, yeah. the, the more mellow mm -hmm. songs. Um, but I, I think that those are, those are all good points, but yeah, this it's its own thing. It's it's it is an amalgamation of like you know a variety of different bands, and you're gonna hear if you listen to this, you're gonna and you're you're familiar with a lot of other '60s artists. Um, you're gonna you're gonna hear all that, I think. But they somehow do make it their own sound. Um, and because I wasn't like, oh, this is a total ripoff of of so and so. It was more like, yeah. oh, I can I could see kind of a little Tim Buckley in here. I can see a little of you know of uh, you know the Who or whoever you know there. Um, so yeah, it was. I I would say that I agree in terms of like the zombies. It's kind of like this underground, lesser known band that's also you know this. The album has become uh, you know very lauded in in, in critical circles. Mm -hmm. um, I think I like you know, the it's... zombies album a little bit better, but um, yeah. but this was still this is it's just it's and it's interesting, right? It keeps you on your toes. It keeps you you know wondering what's going to happen next um, in a way that. You, you, you're you're wanting them to take you in different directions because they've done so already in a way that makes that's that's good, right? There's there's a lot there's melody here. Um, there's cool there's cool instrumentation, um, and so they do they do it really well, and it just kept me wanting to to hear more. Um, you know what's interesting, Matt? I would say this album doesn't have a lot of fathers and it doesn't have a lot of sons. You know, because you can't really see where even the artists that say they love love <laughs> mm -hmm. don't really i mean like robert plant loves this album you know um but also modern more modern acts i shouldn't even say my like some of the artists that really like cite love as an inspiration is like primal scream jesus and mary chain and stone roses but i know mm. all three of those bands and you yeah. don't you know especially jesus and mary chain a band i really like a lot um you know, it doesn't sound like them you know so if you're familiar yeah. with them i wouldn't even say like oh okay you know that's it it doesn't sound totally like that. And that's why I'm saying it doesn't really have a lot of children because it's its own thing, which is not yeah. a bad thing, but it's no, just, yeah. not at all. Oh. Yeah. So, so well, this was other... their biggest, this was their biggest hit clearly. Right. Cause they broke up after. Well, in its time was, or yeah. retrospectively, because retrospectively. it wasn't their biggest retrospectively. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Like in terms of in its time sales wise, it was not its biggest hit. Mm hmm. Which is not surprising. I mean, this, I wouldn't right. say that this is an, a, a quote unquote a accessible album, no. you know, um, even though there's a lot of great parts of it. But it's not like you're not putting this on top 40 radio, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's not really a single on this either. No. That's the other yeah. thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking I, I think more and more there has to be singles on it on an album for me to kind of for it to kind of pique my interest more or mm. stand really? out. Yeah. You're gonna hate this, the '80s. <laughs> You're gonna. <laughs> there's a lot of bands that are on there that they're not singles friendly. So, yeah. And well. and and speaking of that, you might hate the White Album that we're gonna yeah. cover next because there were no singles off of I that was, one. It's funny you say that because I was gonna. I was thinking of it. I was like, how many singles yeah. are on the White Album? So yeah, zero. Continue. The White Album, number six. Um, and number one in 1968 and 14 of all time. Um, so in the opening montage, we heard uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and now we're going to hear a clip from Helter Skelter. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. When I stop and I turn and I go for a ride. Till I get to the bottom and I see you again. 
So that was Helter Skelter, and if you guys listen closely enough, you could hear the Beatles inventing heavy metal with that song. <laughs> um, oh, God. <laughs> and actually, that's a little anecdote about that song. That, that was written by Paul McCartney, and it was inspired by an article that he read uh, where Pete Townsend was talking about a song that they had, the Who recently did um, called I Can See for Miles, which we covered in... Uh, sellout was it the who sellout that that song was on yep. mm-hmm. okay um so at the time townsend made a comment something to the effect of that that was the 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 the, the, the hardest raunchiest you know raw song that the who ever did and when mccartney read that he he expected that song to just be a bunch of screams and just this in your face type of thing and then when he heard it he was he, he was underwhelmed he thought it was going to be harder than what it ended up being and he's like well i can do a really harder a harder song than that and that's uh, what what caused him to he's not wrong that is not the raunchiest song the who ever did by a long even in that the time period, even by so that time weird. yeah yeah do you either of you know what a helter skelter is i do not because no, i did I, not i is, think i probably know it later for what it became appropriated to mean well that's yeah, a, yeah that's another aspect of that of this the whole manson thing mm-hmm. uh but no well, it is also just like you know chaos in general you know yes well that's part of it but it's yeah. but it's in addition it is a fairground attraction um that consists of a tall spiral slide winding down winding around a tower so that's oh, why when okay. he's talking about getting to the top of the slide and he goes for a ride that's it's actually a a, a carnival like or like a fair attraction so mm-hmm. um i didn't know that but anyway um so this album uh, is <laughs> is very interesting. There's a lot of bio for this, so I'm going to try to condense it. But there's there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, it did reach number one both in the United States and the United Kingdom, and there were no songs from the album. But they did record um, singles during this time, uh, "Hey Jude," and and the B side, uh, which is "Revolution," which "Revolution One" is on this album. But they did an electrified, uh, sped up version of that mm-hmm. for the single. Um, the reviews were mostly positive, though there was some criticism over the album's length, which comes in at about 93 and a half minutes. Um, and it also, people were critical of it because it, they said that it lacked the adventurous nature of Sgt. Pepper, and it wasn't as cohesive as other albums that it's they had pretty, done. It's pretty adventurous. I don't know if it's cohesive. It's, I, yeah, it's not as, I mean, they were, it was not as adventurous in terms of what they were doing in the studio. It was a more like, you know, bare boned, you know, kind of recordings, you know, cause Sergeant Pepper, it was a lot more um, experimentation, yeah. I would yeah. say. That's a weird thing to say that it wasn't ex- like experimental. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just, you got songs about again, raccoons like some critics. I think sometimes it's like, what are you listening to? You know what I mean? I can hear the cohesive for sure. I mean, anytime yeah. you make an album that's 93 minutes, you know, it's, there's only so cohesive that can be, you know, but mm-hmm. yeah, experimental is a weird, weird, not being experimental is a weird criticism, but continue. In January. So let's go back. So in January, 1968, so this is a couple of months after, if you remember when we covered, um, uh, magical mystery tour, Brian Epstein, the manager had passed, had died unexpectedly in August. And, um, and, and so the Beatles were kind of left to be their own managers for, t- for the time being. And in January 1968, they were approached by some of their accountants saying, hey, you guys have two million uh, pounds here and we have to do one of two things with them. Either we uh, pay them all in taxes uh, to the government or you can create you can invest in some sort of business venture. So the band decides, all right, well, let's start this uh, company called Apple Corps. And um, it was started as a way to avoid that higher tax bill. And they decided that they wanted to make this a company where they could. Um, offer financial support to anyone who um, wanted to 
make a quote-unquote worthwhile artistic project. So rather than having to go to a, a record company or a music uh, studio or a, a movie studio, they could go to the Beatles uh, and mm-hmm. and have their artwork produced. So this this uh, this you know the next thing they know they're getting a bunch of phone calls at the the, the switchboard and the conference rooms became jammed uh at all hours of the night with people begging for them to give begging the beatles to give them money uh george harrison would later lament that we had every freak in the world coming in there trying to get something <laughs> from us so um so they start this business venture with apple records and also and and they did sign artists including bad finger ravi shankar billy preston and probably the biggest travesty that the Beatles ever did, they, they got James Taylor off the ground, um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. So uh, Harrison, Harrison also later said, basically it was chaos. John and Paul got carried away with the idea and blew millions and Ringo and I just had to go along with it. Oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, so they were That's very kind of the Beatles it. in general, isn't it, right <laughs> <Yeah>. there? Like... <laughs> So while John and Paul were investing in this, George was really getting into um, meditation and convinced the rest of the band to go to India and um, do a uh, kind of like a transcendental meditation seminar mm-hmm. with uh, the Maharishi, who they um, they had already seen do some talks in, in Wales back in 1967. So they go off, um, they all go to India, and this is where they write most of the songs that are on the White Album. Other people that traveled with them included Mike Love from the Beach Boys, and Donovan, who uh, Mike does, Love really Mike of Love all people yep. from the Beach Boys. He, yep, he was there. Uh huh. Okay. He practiced transcendent. I, I he's still forgotten he, his teachings. I I still believe he does it though. I don't. Th- I think that I think he's <laughs> no. Still he, into- I know. Yeah, he does. You're right. The more I think about it, he is like hardcore into that. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, he was weird. he was there. Donovan, the Scottish uh, folk artist, <laughs> who I think, upon further research, I think he's got to get some partial writing credits here because he was responsible for teaching McCartney and Lennon a couple of different finger picking uh, uh, techniques that were used on songs like um, uh, "Dear Prudence" mm-hmm. and um, I think maybe. Uh, was it I Will and Julia? So like a lot of the finger picking and the acoustic guitars are credited to Donovan. You know what's um, interesting too? Like he's not in, in any of the top 100 here. He's not even in the bonus episodes we're doing off the Rolling Stones. He's probably the biggest artist from the 60s that yeah. we, we won't cover at all because he, you know, he was a big deal and yeah, we really he, haven't covered him at all. He was hanging so. around. He's in that dylan documentary too he, he gets ragged on there yeah <laughs> he's just always yeah, hanging he, around <laughs> yeah he's always kind of in the periphery donovan <laughs> yeah. but uh no he uh you know he was definitely friends with these guys and helped them uh you know create parts of this, the different styles of this of this can album. you guys name a donovan song since i feel like we need <laughs> to give him at least head. a quick hurdy gurdy man he wrote <laughs> He wrote her, and I only know that because I came up in the research he wrote that when he was in india with these guys so oh, i know you don't know any other really? did he do oh, mellow oh. yellow he did well Is he did he? a version oh, of it oh i love it, yes. that song he did a version of it yes i'll um i'll, I'll revisit that down the road i've got a couple <laughs> that he does but yeah so we'll give him a little shout out right there so there you go mm-hmm. um also also at the uh the 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 the, the ashram it was uh mia farrow and yep. uh, and her sister prudence who the song dear prudence was written after because prudence would be would be so into the meditation that she would just sit in her tent or her bungalow or whatever for hours and hours and hours. And they were like, is she ever going to come out of there? And so John, that's what dear prudence is about. Come out. The sun, the sun is up. The sky's blue. Let's hang out. Um, 
So this was, uh, so Harrison was really into this. Lennon was pretty much into this as well. Ringo and Paul, not as much. Ringo actually left only after a couple weeks because he, 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 he couldn't eat the food. He had, he had pretty severe allergies. And uh, he made the joke that when he traveled there, he had to uh, bring one suitcase full of clothes and the other one full of Heinz baked beans because um, he just couldn't eat the food. He also hated the bugs. Paul left a little earlier to go, um, a couple weeks after Ringo, to go take care of the, some of the business uh uh, uh, things that he needed to take care of with Apple Records. Um, and Lennon and Harrison stayed a little bit longer, eventually leaving when the Maharishi, there was some rumors going around that he was being inappropriate to some of the women, particularly Mia Farrow. And mm. um, Lennon got really pissed off and confronted him and actually wrote the song Sexy Sadie on this record is about the Maharishi. You, know, you made a Farrow. fool of everyone. Um hmm. And uh, later, did not have good luck with men, did she? Really, along no. the way. No. <laughs> but but I can say later on they did find out that those allegations were untrue, um, and they did feel okay. bad about um, you know about treating Maharishi the way that they did. So even though that they, I would say that they all got something out of this. It was all something that for years, for the rest of their lives, that they you know in one way, shape, or form. George in particular didn't George he oh absolutely yeah. Yeah, absolutely mm -hmm. you know George was very much into this um, and this was his the reason that they were there basically was because was because of George um, yeah I feel like that's one of kind of the standout events of their you know existence as mm -hmm. a band as, the, as them going to India and it's interesting too because they actually they actually got along pretty well when they, when they were there even though this was you know this ends up being a very tumultuous time period for them when we, when they actually record the album uh, that's you know, Lennon said when you hear that album that you could hear the ba band breaking up. And that's that's what this album is. But this but the, album? The, the white album, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's it's funny because I actually think this album sounds like detached from the time that it's in. You know, like we talked about being in the summer of love. Like, there's mm -hmm. not a lot that would peg it. You know, as being that because it's all over the place. Well, but I will. I'll save some of I'll my get, thoughts for later. I'll get to that in a second too because okay. there's a little bit gotcha. behind that as well. But okay. Um. So so they did leave and they um. Uh, you know, they, uh, let's see. Oh, and also you can go visit this ashram now. They, they did abandon it several years later and just kind of left it there. But in 2015, they reopened it so people can go visit it. And I think, uh, what 600 rupees will get you in. And do you have any idea how much that is, Josh? It's like five bucks. I don't know. Uh, 850, I think. <laughs> okay. 850. Yeah. So you can go see the Beatles ashram. Um, so, so they go back to the studio and, um, this is really listening to this record and, and reading more about it, it's, 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 it's pretty clear that this is um, almost like three different solo albums because um, McCartney, Lennon, and even Harris, Harrison has several songs on here. And a lot of the recording that was done was done independent of, of, of each other. So there's, there's a lot of um, songs on here that are either just Her uh, McCartney. Um, yeah, I noticed a, that. There's just Lennon. There's Lennon and Ringo. There's McCartney and Ringo. You know, there's George doing this. So, and there was at times when they were doing this, the recordings for this, that um, that George Martin, the producer, would have to bounce between three different studios because guys were doing different things. Um, and so, also at this time, you have Yoko enter the picture. Um, even though John had met her back in 1966, um, they started um, actually seeing each other. And this was the time, that, if you guys have ever heard of that Two Virgins album that, that Lennon did with mm -hmm. Yoko, which is like this experimental, they're just screaming, essentially. It's, it's, just, it's, it's an album. They're naked on the cover of the album. Wasn't that like John Lennon's thing that he did like lots of therapy about like primal screams and stuff? Yeah. I remember, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. primal scream because he had a lot of trauma. 
obviously yep. in his life and so 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 Yoko spends he invites Yoko over they they record this monstrosity of an album and then they 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 make love that night and then Cynthia comes home from her vacation in Greece to see them together so oh, um, and John starts bringing Yoko into the studio which the rest of the band is you know <laughs> pretty not very happy about because that was never something that was done before and in addition to that Yoko's also not she's not just sitting there she's making suggestions and she's inserting herself and and <laughs> In particular, Paul was threatened by this because this is, you know, this was his writing partner and his his guy, right? And um, so, so he wasn't too happy about that. So the tension certainly grew in the studio, um, and it, it even caused a period of time where Ringo quits the band for a period of about two weeks because wow. he found his role being more diminished. He felt himself being more kind of pushed to the say, side. Um, Paul was that? there, but I'm sure George Harrison, who struggled to get albums, like songs on the album, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. to the point where he released like uh, like a, a an eight disc album when he was done. It felt pretty like, much, but he was yeah, all things must pass, right? It's yeah, it's, it's a triple album, triple, yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I mm -hmm. joked okay. eight, but it's yeah, it's triple. Um, and then you know Ringo, yeah, I'm sure he already was like so. I, it's funny that it was couched as Paul, but I, I'm sure. The last thing George and Ringo wanted was somebody in there coming in, giving their editorial opinion when they weren't really being listened yeah, to. Yeah, no, beginning. no, yeah, none of them, none of them liked it, um, you know, for sure. And Ringo, Ringo got mad at Paul because Paul kept criticizing his drum playing on back in the USSR, and so he just leaves. So they had which to is pick where up the Ringo's not a good drummer came from, which always was unfair. Is that where it came from? A, a lot of it, yeah, came from that. Mm. A, a lot of Beatles stuff is mythologized, and that's where the oh, yeah. idea that R Ringo was a bad drummer came from. And I'll, I'm the first to say, well, Ringo did exactly what he was supposed to for the Beatles. Oh, so. Ringo, yeah, Ringo, yeah, that's yeah. I, I never agreed with that. But he was, yeah. So there's a couple of tracks like that song uh, back in the USSR, Dear Prudence. Ringo's not actually playing drums on that because he because that was the time period that he quit. Um, and it also forced an engineer, Jeff uh, Jeff Emmerich, to quit midway through a recording session because he just couldn't stand the bickering and and, and all the stuff that was going on. So it was, uh, even though like even though you got someone like Ringo saying he was glad to get back into the studio and play songs like this because he didn't really enjoy Sergeant Pepper because he that's he, mm -hmm. his, he said he was you know not really. Uh, used a lot or as much as he wanted to he didn't really like that album as much um but also at the same time you have a very disjointed band that and everybody's kind of doing their own thing you know ringo really wanted to be back in india paul was big into the business aspect of apple records john was infatuated with yoko and you know so um so yes yeah, so this wanted is to be back in india did i say ringo i meant george yeah. George. Okay. Gotcha. George. Yeah. No, Ringo. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and Ringo just felt like the odd man out, you know, and he act to the mm -hmm. point where he quits. Um, so this is a sprawling record. It's very long. It's um, the, the songs are noted for being uh, not really, ex you know, each song being its own genre. And it's, and it's really, um, you know, jumping from like a, a fast paced, heavy song to like a low, a slower, melodic, quieter song. Um, it was designed to, you know, kind of all flow together. So that the track listing is is it's, it's certainly very deliberate. They also used a, a an eight track recorder as opposed to the four track recorder that they were using before. So there's a little bit of experimentation going on there. Um, and so that's what you got here. This is uh, the, the Beatles White Album. And um, if you don't like this version, you can always try to hear Fish's performance of the entire White Album from October 31st, 1994, <laughs> from Live Fish, Fish Volume 13. And that's not very good. I don't. I, I'm not a big fan of that. So, um, but wow, yeah, yeah. why would listen so, to that? 
<laughs> I, 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 just to see, they actually they and they do do a cover of um, Revolution Nine on that. It's only four minutes long though. So wow. Uh, yeah. So let's um. So let's start with our reactions. I think John. I think you you you, you your turn is up to go first. What do you what do you think of the White Album? I've always this is like a beautiful mess of an album. The White. I, I love this album, but it's a mess. You know, it's all over. It's but it's a good mess. It's an interesting mess. It's it shouldn't have been a. Well, it's a double album. It feels like a triple album. It's what thirty songs, I think. Yeah, exactly. Thirty, 30 yep. right? Thirty. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I've always felt like this should should really have probably been condensed into like two fifteen song albums or maybe three ten song albums, something along the way. Because um, I think then it would be an interesting slice of life if they had spread this out over a longer period of time. But some of the um, some of the what makes the white album the white album is it is this like massive 93 minutes right Mm -hmm. um sprawling and you know you have as as has been i mean a lot of the stuff that you mentioned matt is exactly what you realize that it's it's a lot more like um this is a george song this is a john song this is a paul song you know even the songs where ringo sings you know he he didn't write them but they you know they're ringo songs you know nope he wrote don't pass me by was a ringo song he wrote that and he actually wrote that in 1962 before he joined the band i apologize to ringo he, he did write a song, song then. So, yes. Wait, did he do Octopus Card? Yep. Yeah, those Octopus. are the two the two songs that he wrote as the Beatles, yeah. and this is like the first Octopus one Garden. that they were. Yeah, I like Octopus Garden more than this one, yeah. so that's yeah, that's a guilty pleasure of mine for sure. Maybe not even guilty; it's a good song. But um, yeah, there's there's all kinds of good stuff on this spread all over the place. I mean, it, while there's no singles, you know, while my guitar gently weeps, Obladi oh, Oblada, oh, Dear Prudence, you know, Rocky Raccoon, Back in the USSR, like these mm-hmm. are also you know. You know, even like Blackbird, Julia, you know, uh, there's a whole bunch of different songs on here that are, although they're, they're all on disc one, aren't they? Yeah, disc one is it. definitely really stronger than disc two, yeah. I think. I would agree with that. Although, you know, there's some good, I mean, Helter Skelter is a great song. Yeah. I've always had a soft spot for birthday, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's one thing that's interesting about this. There's a lot of callbacks to like the Beatles R&B roots mm-hmm. and like. Um, stuff on this album you know whether it be birthday or you know even you know back in the ussr sounds like a song from the early 60s to some degree in terms of how it's put together um it's it's really interesting the musicianship is good this is a this is an album that once again showcases how good a musicians the beatles are which i'm not gonna say it gets lost sometimes but the mythology kind of takes it into different directions everybody knows the songwriting but songwriting's tippy top here even when it gets ridiculous at times mm-hmm. um uh I, I don't mind when it gets ridiculous because it's actually kind of a fun album it's a weird album to have been released in 1968 um it doesn't seem like it would have been from 1968 based on everything that we've covered from 1968 which has like a deep edge to it um this doesn't have as much of an edge as certainly like later Beatles albums and I would say even like you know Rubber Soul and Revolver have a little bit more sharp edges in it than this does Revolver definitely you think Um, so I do I do like I don't I I don't know I I I, this is a very happy album to me which is why it's funny that it's like the beginning of the Beatles falling apart Um, I don't know how to describe it and I know that some of the songs aren't always happy but you know, and I'll, I'll be interested to hear your take, Matt, but this is, I, I've long ranked this as either my second or third favorite Beatles album. I, it's, 
I, I, I kind of go in tiers with the Beatles. So this is in my top tier Beatles albums, right uh-huh. up there with Rubber Soul, Help, and Revolver, the middle ones. And actually, I really, spoiler alert, I really like Abbey Road too quite a bit. So they're kind of like those five I can listen to over and over again. Um, yeah. And there's other Beatles albums I love too, but those are kind of the five that I'd rank as my top five. Uh, I like it. I, I, what can you say? It's the White Album. It's you know everybody should listen to it at least once in their life. Um, I can see a variety of different takes on it, but um, it's just a lot of really good, a lot of really good mm-hmm. pop songs. And you know, it, it's funny because even though it's ninety three minutes, it didn't, didn't seem as long as that Van Morrison album. That's a very it's definitely it definitely felt long. Don't get me wrong, but it, it's, that was the you know, best point you've made, long. John. That yeah, was. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, All right, Josh, oh, I made think? plenty of good points there. So, yeah, I know. Josh, yeah, yeah. This has historically been my favorite Beatles album um, out of all of them, and I'm kind of rethinking that after you know some of our discussions of other albums. But it's still very high up there for me. I really love this album. I can't. It's just amazing how good of songwriters they are, and they can create catchy songs out of seemingly like throwaway ideas when you can you know write a song about bungalow bill which is kind of just like a nonsense song and it it just catchy and sticks in your head um i can't you know you got a you got a whole stretch of animal songs there and all of them (laughs) are good and they're all different and that's pretty much you know sprawling is the word that comes to mind for this album for me but there's so much variety and and there's so many strong songs on it i just love it um while my guitar gently weeps is probably one of my favorite songs of all time not just the beatles um i just love the guitar on it and um you know it it could be cut down but i don't know how looking at the first disc it's like all of the songs are good it's almost a perfect album on its own if well, you're I can tell just you eight gonna... minutes and 22 seconds they <laughs> yeah so. yeah but the dis the second disc is a bit bit um you know less uh strong but there's still also really good songs on that like helter skelter i think savoy truffle is one of my favorite deep cuts of on this um and you know, again, everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey is another example of just kind of seemingly a silly idea, but they, they crafted into such a great, um, catchy song. I love listening to this album because it's so sprawling. You forget about things and you can rediscover them. Uh, that's what I did on this one. I forgot about the revolution one being slow. And I was like, I remember this being fast. And then mm-hmm. I looked it up and, and the single was the, the one that I always listened to. Yep. And, um, so and you know after after listening to all the other work that we've listened to on the 60s journey revolution 9 doesn't even seem so bad to me Um, (laughs) that's fair there's a lot worse that we've listened to so yeah i can't i i wouldn't start here with the beatles you know this isn't but this is like a culmination in some ways of Mm. of everything that we've listened to up to this point it just it's just so great um there's a song for everybody on here, I think, um, with this many, many different types and, and melodies, tempos, subjects, you know, favorite of the Beatles. You got songs by each of them mm-hmm. on here. So you really yeah. can't go wrong with it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, uh, 
this is excellent. Um, it it's not my favorite. It's one of those. It's 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 either two, three, or four. Um, mm-hmm. it's it's probably more a two or a three than a four. But uh, it's it's certainly in the top um, echelon. And I always have a, a special place. This always holds a special place for me because when I started really getting into the Beatles beyond the singles and stuff, this was one of the first records that I got, and I was. I was surprised. I didn't know any, hardly knew any of the songs, you know, mm-hmm. nearly as much. And I was just like, wow, this is just, it's one great thing after another. And, you know, even if there's a song on here that maybe you don't like, or you're not as into, just go wait one more song and it's going to yeah. take you in a totally different direction. And it's most likely going to, you know, you're, you're going to find at least several songs on here that, that you really like, um, if not way more. Um, but it is, it is, it was interesting, you know, doing the research behind how, individualistic this all these songs were you know to the point where I, I was always fascinated with how you know certain songs got on here like obla di obla da which i think is a song that's on here that a, it gets a lot of flack people you know a lot of even beatles fans think ah oh, it's crap even lennon called lennon clennon called it granny music shit you know it's just <laughs> you know never never liked that song and neither did harrison um or i don't i don't know if ringo felt ringo probably liked it but um <laughs> But I always was interested in like, you know, there's songs on here that other members hated, but it still made it on the record, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I'm always interested in what that conversation must must be like. Um, but uh, yeah, you got While My Guitar Gently Weeps. It's I don't know if it's it's one of my two favorite Harrison songs. Um, and that's it, it's really What's your other you got, one out of curiosity. Oh, uh, here comes the sun. Okay, I was about to say that's always my answer for that one. Yeah, it's 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 between those. It's usually here comes the sun, but I yeah, and and there's a great version of while my guitar gently weeps that's on the anthology um, records. That's just like hip, uh, Harrison and an acoustic guitar, and it's it's beautiful. It's just real. It's haunting mm-hmm. almost. Um, and you actually have Eric Clapton playing guitar on that. He's doing the the guitar solo on while my on, oh, the, wow. on this version here. Yep. And that's and actually in Savoy Truffle that you like, Josh. That's about that's a song about um, chocolates. Yeah, because Eric Clapton <laughs> loves eating chocolates, and so and that was he was he just saw him eating a bunch of uh, chocolates one day, and he decided to write a song, to talk about it. But this is the beginning of, of Harrison and, and and Clapton doing a lot of uh, they, they collaborated a lot around this time. And um, actually, I learned that Harrison co-wrote "Badge" with uh, with Eric Clapton, um, the Cream song, which hmm. I never knew. So, um, wow, but. Yeah, but I love and one of my favorite songs on here is actually a song that I didn't realize that the that the entire band said that everybody agreed that their favorite song on this album was "Happiness Is a Warm Gun," which is oh, it's uh, mine too. It's my favorite song on this album. At, yep, it's just it's, yeah, it's three distinct songs that Lennon had different pieces of, and he rolls them all together. Um, and uh, it was uh, it was this, the title of it was taken from I guess George Martin had an NRA magazine in his uh on his on his console or whatever and uh the, the title of the article was happiness is a warm gun which is a play off of off of uh, a peanuts book by charles m schultz called happiness is a warm puppy mm. um so <laughs> yeah so apparently george martin liked guns but uh lenin liked that it was about um you know he's like what is that happiness is a warm gun it's it means that you just shot somebody or shot something and that's mm-hmm. happiness he's like what is that about so um but he just created a, a tremendous song you know with, with that um and another another funny story i have with this is my my brother told the story years ago he was playing this record in the car and his daughter my my niece was i don't know probably like seven or eight and they're listening to and why don't we do it in the road comes on <laughs> and she goes why don't we do what in the road and his explanation was uh ride bikes <laughs> so 
that's a good answer for an eight-year-old wondering yeah. what what the heck he's talking if she's about. She's wondering now. The real answer is boning. Boning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There you go, Nora. There you go. That's uh, John. Just to let you know. Um, but yeah, your blues love that song. Mm, you know, yeah. it's just a great, and it's actually a parody. Lennon wrote that as kind of a parody of of of, of white British dudes doing trying to do blues music. But you mean like Led Zeppelin <laughs> and Eric Clapton <laughs> yeah. and yeah, or and, the and, Beatles and, themselves, yeah. <laughs> or the Beatles themselves. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, and everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Great song that's got like a cool guitar part that's kind of going on the offbeat. You know, mm-hmm. um, that seems kind of off, off. You know, off. Like, it seems like it doesn't belong, but they somehow make it fit. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, yeah, man, I, the, you, the thing, the problem with this is you could just keep going on and on because there's so right. many different freaking <laughs> songs. Um, but, yeah, Don't Pass Me By is Ringo, that Ringo's doing his own song there. And I always, that's a good country song. The band, actually, that we've covered. I uh, told George Harrison when he went to go visit them that that was their favorite song on this record, which is not surprising because it's kind of Ringo doing his his country thing. But um, it's, it, you're right, Josh, there's something for everybody on here. It's a classic album. It is, it's long, it's all over the place, but they somehow, even the Beatles, they somehow managed to make that, which right. are two critic criticisms that a lot of us have had of other albums, but they still, they, they are so good that they do it in a way that you're not sick of it. You're not, it, you're not bored by it. You like it. You almost want more. It does die down a little bit in the second half of the record. I would, you know, it's particularly from, you know, long, long, long through the rest of the record. Um, yeah. Even though Subway Truffle is really good, and I like Revolution One, but it's not as good as the the single that they did. Um, you know, so it does. And Revolution Nine is certainly a skippable track. Um, it's just Lennon decided to cut a bunch of tape loops together, and actually Harrison had a big part in that too. Yoko made a comment that he was the one that was the really dri- driving the driving force behind that. Mm-hmm. That really wanted to get that made, but. Um, yeah, it's uh, this is this is classic stuff. Um, I yeah, I it go listen to it. I think one of the things is too they keep the, they still keep the songs at like two to three minutes. So it's you know unlike mm-hmm. some of the other long albums that we listen to where the songs are seven or eight minutes, like we've been discussing, they yeah. just keep rolling on. Um, I also one thing I forgot to mention is I like the self-referential aspect of this. They reference other Beatles songs in it through lyrics, which I always think is clever and, and a little, um, you know, self, uh, self-effacing or well, that you know, was they're done not on taking pur- themselves too seriously. Well, they were also doing that on purpose because this is also at the height of all the, the Paul is dead stuff. So like oh. <laughs> Lennon was particularly throwing things in there just to throw people off. Um, you know, and this is also like the, the album that, that Charles Manson thought that there was a bunch of hidden meetings in several of songs, including like Helter Skelter, mm-hmm. you know, th- that, you know, was the Beatles prophesizing a race war that he needed to prepare for. So, um, yeah, a lot of that's a lot of that stuff was happening around, you know, people interpreting this in different ways. And that was a different way of the Beatles. Um, you know, kind of playing against that. Actually, in Savoy Truffle, George references Obladi Oblada, which is on this oh, record. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not even, it's not even like they're referencing stuff that happened, you know, in previous records. They're also referencing these actual songs. Um, yeah. So it's it's a really interesting time for the band. And um, you know, they do, they, it's amazing that after reading some of these uh, stories, that they stayed together, you know, and they did more albums yeah. for a couple more years. And you're like, it seems like they hated each other <laughs> at this time period, um, but they still were able to stick it out for a couple more years. I mean, hey, the Who made a whole career despite the fact they hated each other the whole time, you know? Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, can't, I mean, we could talk about the Beals all day. I can't imagine Yoko being in the studio. That would be so aggravating. 
to me if yeah. I were in the band. <laughs> and she but didn't as leave. Everybody knows you can't tell someone who you know when they love somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anything. So it's yeah, that's yeah. It yeah. just and throws she, off the whole dynamic, though. Yeah, and, yeah, and she stayed there for the rest of the time. You know, she that was that she was the at this point the fifth Beatle, yeah. uh, much to the chagrin of everybody else. I thought George Martin was the fifth Beatle. Yeah, well, he actually the sixth Beatle. Yes. He might have been the sixth one. You know, Pete Best was in there, and so was uh, Stuart. But actually, George Martin was what didn't like the length of this record. He thought that it should have been a single album. He was getting a little fed up with, you know, all the fighting, and he went on vacation for a while. So some of the songs on this weren't even produced by him. It was his, like, his assistant or whatever. So even Those he was fair getting criticisms, little... I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay, right. well, that wraps it up. It wraps it up. Episode 30 is in the can this week. We are officially done. Um, and next week will be quite an interesting episode. Um, we will be once again revisiting the Beatles, a little album called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, I will be taking it back with the Rolling Stones, which is remarkable. It's only the second time we've done the Stones, which mm-hmm. doesn't Third. seem... Is oh it, yeah, so did, Beggar's oh, Bank. Oh, third, you're right. Aftermath yeah. and Beggar's Bank. Okay, so yeah, that's a little bit more apropos then. Okay, I was trying to think, but yeah, okay. So third time we're doing the Stones. This time it's Let It Bleed, and then we're going to be having another debut: the uh, well-regarded King Crimson, and in the court of the Crimson King will be our third album next week. Um, and then just a little bit of a heads up: we will do one more full episode for 32, and then the 33rd and 34th episode will be albums three and four or excuse me it'll be two and four because there's beatles albums we want to split them up a little bit so two and four will be there along with a bonus album and then the final episode will be albums one and three with a with no bonus album in in lieu of that we will do a wrap-up of our journey through the 60s with some superlatives as well so uh a grand total of three episodes left with only one full length episode left. Crazy. You guys ready? I can't believe it's almost here. That's I can't believe it either. It's remarkable. And then, you know, before we know it, we'll be in the seventies. We're also going to be dropping, uh, some bonus episodes. We'll probably take a little bit of a break, um, maybe a week or two um, between decades. Um, but in that time, you will not be CTS deficient because we will be dropping some stuff that we've been taping on the sly uh, mm-hmm. to have ready for you to satiate your hunger for CTS. So keep your um, keep your ears and eyes open for that. It's going to be a little bit of a different format. We'll be interested to hear your feedback on the different style. So for Josh and Matt, this is John signing off for CTS, Combing the Stacks. Feel free to listen at the end for all of our platforms as well as our handles on social, YouTube, and more. Have a wonderful week. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks, but the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at combingthe. We'd also like to give a shout out to Defy the Mall, who performs our theme song Coastin', as well as Red Bellows, who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track, Phonetic. Have a great night!